So the Wall Street Journal had an article back in 2017 that reported what a team of researchers had found about the philosophy of 20 and 30 year olds relationships. And they interviewed one man, a 24 year old recent college graduate from Denver. He said he wants to marry someone someday, but until then, he wanted to have sex with as many women as possible. That was what he said. And he believes that he's figured out how to do that. Uh, his goal was to mislead. Tell them what they want to hear. And if you know what the girl wants, you tell them what they want to hear, and then you can have the control. Those were his own words. Now, he sounds like a jerk. I grant you that. His transition from a selfish outlook to a committed relationship won't be very easy. And from this article, Professor Scott Stanley of University of Denver said that he sees visible daily sacrifices, such as accepting inconveniences in order to see a woman as the way that men typically show their developing commitment. He said it signals the expectation of a future together. And such small instances of self-sacrificing love may sound simple, but they are less likely to, to develop when past and present relationships are founded on the expectation of cheap sex. Now, what seems apparent from this article then is that what's more important is what people do than what they say, right? Most of us have talked to people who've experienced some type of abuse, whether it's emotional blackmail or manipulation or even physical abuse. One of the common threads is that the abuser will often say, I am sorry, and then proceed to make zero real changes. And the apology is often meant as a way to relieve guilt, to get out of conflict, never get to the root of taking full responsibility. And this is often displayed when given enough time, the abuser is blaming the other person in the process. Right? I remember in one case where I met a, a new couple to the church and uh, my first contact with him, I think, was him calling me from jail because he had abused his wife. And uh, he said that the reason he did this was because she was not submissive. So he blamed her for his abuse. And then it's trying to use a biblical concept to why he was abusing. So he refused to take responsibility for his actions and then took the role of judge, jury, and jailer, actually, as he twisted biblical truth. You know, I think it's the grossest kind of abuse to couch your abuse in religious terms. And religion can also often be used as a manipulation tool to groom the victims. Again, the point is words are not near as important as actions. So if you want to know that a person truly loves you, the actions of self-sacrifice speak much louder than words. And if you want to know if a person has truly repented of being an abuser, you look at the actions not the apology. Such an approach, I think, is also what God thinks about the topic. Uh, we read in 1 John 5, 3, 
For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. So your love is demonstrated by actions. 1 Corinthians 13 describes what love is, and it's all verbs, and verbs describe what? Action. So love is not a feeling of romance, at least the kind of love we're talking about here, that Hesed kind of Old Testament love that was talked about in Hosea, a, a loyal love. It is self-sacrifice for the other person. I'm not saying it's void of feeling, but I'm saying if the feeling is not there, we don't get off the hook in a committed relationship. You still love, and often the feeling follows. But this is what was missing from Israel's relationship with God. They were basing it all just on feeling or passion. Consider a well-known song sung by the Righteous Brothers, covered by Hall and Oates. You've lost that loving feeling. The song was featured in the movie Top Gun. And though popular... And I liked the tune, but when you dig down in and you learn more about what it's saying, it perpetuates this inaccurate view of love. So listen to the words. I'm not going to sing it for you. <laughs> now, there's no welcome look in your eyes when I reach for you, and now you're starting to criticize little things I do. It makes me just feel like crying because, baby, something beautiful's dying you lost that love and feeling. So apparently the man's fragile ego can't take his partner pointing out something to him. It's not exactly a picture of a courageous, secure man that he wilts at criticism and now he wants to cry. Baby, baby, I get down on my knees for you. If you would only love me like you used to, yeah, we had a love, a love you won't find every day. So don't, don't, don't let it slip away. You almost had it. So apparently, he said this love you don't find every day. Apparently this is unique out of the seven and a half billion people on the earth to have this kind of love. And if it slips away, it's her fault because she's not on the biggest fan bandwagon, right? Baby, baby, I beg you, please, 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 I need your love, need your love. I don't know about you, but I've never thought it was a sign of success when you have to beg somebody to like you, okay? I'm not an authority on the topic, but that just seems to be the case. The problem with all of this selfish ambition and perspective is that love is just seen as a way to make me feel a certain way. My experience is you often fall out of liking someone, but you don't fall out of loving someone in a biblical sense, as said, which is a committed, loyal relationship. It's a promise for sacrificial love. It's not unusual that the feelings will fluctuate. Several years ago, Janet and I were having dinner in Branson and sitting next in the table over to us was Bill Medley, the lead singer of the Righteous Brothers. 
So I told him this song really sucked. And no, I, I really didn't. Not, not really. <laughs> but we did eat right next to him. But the, the point is we become enculturated with an inaccurate view of love. And it impacts how we respond to one another because we think they exist to help us feel better. I mean, it's quite something that love is twisted in our culture's definition to feed the flesh. This was the problem with Israel. They loved the fleshly desires more than loving and worshiping God. Let's take a look at this passage in Hosea. Let's all stand. Now, there's a, there's a section, the last part of chapter 11, uh, of chapter 6, verse 11, uh, we're going to include because it will flow better if we read this first. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed when I restore the fortunes of my people. And then starting chapter 7, when I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed and the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. The thief breaks in and the bandits raid outside, but they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face. By their evil, they make the king glad and the princes by their treachery. They are all adulterers. They are like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our king, the princes become sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers. For with hearts like an oven, they approach their intrigue. All night, their uh, anger smolders. In the morning, it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. You may be seated. When I would heal Israel, the inequity of Ephraim is revealed, and the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. The thief breaks in, and the bandits raid outside. So God has this desire to bring healing to Israel. And you might remember in chapter 6, there was this, this apology that Israel had given to God. It wasn't real repentance. They said the right words, but it was just an empty apology. The reason we know this is because their sin continued. The actions did not follow the words. Big difference between an apology and real repentance. People were still cheating one another. People were being burglarized. The Israelites and gangs were mugging people. And God is saying, I hear your words, but all this evil is still going on. There's not true repentance. But they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them and they are before my face. What they don't have really is a knowledge of God because a, a, a knowledge of God would teach them that God is omniscient, that God is holy, that God is just. And they would fear God, but they don't have that. So instead it's like a slap in the face of God. They act as if he's not even aware of their sin. But their evil deeds engulf them. It's like a wall that completely surrounds them, making repentance a sham, impossible in their present state. By their evil, they make the king glad, and the princes, by their treachery, 
people want to cozy up, cozy up to the political and religious leaders in power. And since the leaders were practicing debauchery, participating in idol worship and prostitution, the people followed. No one dare confront the sin. They all go along with it. The problem is seen later in this passage that people flatter the leadership only to turn on them later. If you're in a position of leadership at work, in a church, wherever it is, you sometimes can hear flattery because people have an agenda cozying up to you, hoping you'll buy into their ideology or whatever it is that they want. Others feigned leadership with the king to practice treachery, it says. God's design is that the leaders be the moral guides for the nation. They were not that. The priests were not that. The kings were not that. Instead, they themselves wander astray. King after king was wicked, and they failed to see God as the source of stability. Does that sound familiar? Leaders failing to see God as the source of stability? That God stuff is just outdated. We don't need that, is what they think. They are all adulterers. They are like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. Like a fire in the oven, Israel's passions subside for a short time, but it's ever-present, ready to blaze forth when kindled. I've got a ceramic smoker, Kamado Joe. You can have the embers in there for 12 hours if you want. Keep the fire low. But if you want to heat it up, even after 12 hours, you can open up the air, it will get hot again. And this is kind of the picture that Israel was ready to go at any time with sin. Ready to get heated in their passions. They had completely forgotten about God. They are consumed with their passion, no realization that he's fully acquainted with with all their ways. And on the day of our king, the princes become sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers. So you have the leaders at a party toasting one another with their wine as a friendly gesture. The problem is they are toasting with people who are also mocking God. They are toasting with people who also want to overthrow the king. Instead of leading the way of wisdom, the kings play the fool with others who mock God. We see that today. Country after country. Just recently I read an article about China. Sexual debauchery and drugs at the top in China. So, well, I'm glad that doesn't happen here. Obviously, this country is not immune to it. Sexual and financial malfeasance in those in power. There's, there's a sense of invincibility. I'm not going to get caught. As if God does not exist. The same was true in the Middle East. On my recent trip to Lebanon, 
One feels empathy with the common people who are readily aware of the political corruption that has led to a plummeting of their currency. 90% reduction because of the corruption. A failure to bring to justice those who were responsible for the blast that killed 200 people at their seaport. Even anti-government protests a couple years ago have failed to move the needle. One article said, the behemoth of political depravity has become so large that it has blocked the Lebanese people from imagining a future without it. I can't even imagine what a good government looks like because we haven't seen one in so long. And I think there are people who've lost hope even here. When's this country going to turn back to acknowledging that God is real? I'm not asking for a theocracy, but I'm asking for people to acknowledge that God exists, that he's real, and that he's to be looked to for wisdom. But when a government forgets God, you can expect people to follow. We demonize our political opponents. We don't see them as made in the image of God. In short, there is no deference to God in his ways. Listen to Hosea's words. For with hearts like an oven, they approach their intrigue. All night, their anger smolders. In the morning, it blazes like a burning fire, a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. Again, you have this fire, this anger that smolders. And in the morning, they're ready to go again. It's a flaming fire. They are hot in their passions. And he speaks of the demise of Israel's leaders. And we read this in 2 Kings. Now, I'm not going to read every passage. You can read these for yourself, but uh, I'll read a couple here. Listen to 2 Kings 15, 3 through 5. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. There's still idol worship. The people still sacrificed and made offerings in the high places. And the Lord touched the king so that he was a leper in the day of his death. And he lived in a separate house. 2 Kings 15, 8 through 10. In the 38th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, reigned over Israel in Samaria six months, and he did what was evil in the sight of God. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam and was struck down, put to death. We read it again, 2 Kings 15, 13 and 15. Put to death. 2 Kings 15, 23 through 25. Another king put to death, assassinated. Time and time again. It was just rampant. God had allowed this to happen, hoping that they would see the desperate situation they were in and they would remember God. But that was not the case. So Hosea warns them again. 
They relish in it. They seek to satisfy their personal lusts. They do not seek God. They burn in their passion for evil like an oven that refuses to be extinguished. Again, this is what happens when God is left out of the picture. There's no one to discover the remedy, and even if they did discover the remedy, people would not want to listen. Even in the most dire circumstances, their thoughts do not turn to the covenant of the Lord. And we see this today in our culture. Talk to students about just something like abortion. And the reasoning is devoid of, of, of logic or any moral boundaries. They'll say something like, well, we want to do what's best for the child and not have them be born into this world where it's going to be so tough, so we kill them. What? Does that make sense? I kill them to do what's best for the child? Wow. In the absence of God, though, people still turn to anything that resembles the supernatural. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has made every human with this innate desire for eternity. So even the practice of idols is this desire that I need something more. I reject God, the real God of the universe, but I still recognize there's this need for something. One New York Times article says, consider that roughly 30% of Americans report they have felt in contact with someone who has died. Nearly 20% believe they have been in the presence of a ghost. About one-third of Americans believe that ghosts exist and can interact with and harm humans. Around two-thirds hold supernatural or paranormal beliefs of some kind, including beliefs in reincarnation, spiritual energy, and psychic powers. These numbers are much higher than they were in previous decades, the article says, when more people reported being highly religious. People who do not frequently attend church are twice as likely to believe in ghosts as those who are regular churchgoers. The less religious people are the more likely to endorse empirically unsupported ideas about UFOs, intelligent aliens, monitoring the lives of humans, and related conspiracies about a government cover-up of these phenomena. End quote. Now, if I ended the sermon right there, this would really be depressing, that that is the case of the human heart. I actually see it as an avenue for the gospel, because people are searching for something. So instead of condemning the culture, I'm describing the culture. I don't want to condemn the person who's a victim of these things, but I want to communicate to them the gospel where they can come in contact with the real God of the universe. Jude provides, I think, necessary encouragement when he says this, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, 
keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. He is making a beeline for Jesus Christ. This is our hope. And don't be surprised, Jude says, of these ungodly passions being expressed. We must be diligent to build each other up in the faith and the love of God in relationship with God and in the truth of who God is and how he's revealed himself. Understand that our salvation is not because we have proven ourselves, but because of God's mercy and grace upon us. And so we show mercy and grace to others and seek to restore those who are fallen. Our only hope is Jesus Christ. It's not a political system. It's Jesus Christ. Let's pray.